What? College matters. What? College, college matters. matters. Really? For sure. College matters. Alma, Alma matters. So, you know, I think for those who are unfamiliar with the process, college admissions feels like it's written in its own language, right? Mm-hmm. And this is especially true for, for first-generation students whose families don't have their own experiences to draw on. Um, and so I would say that the hidden curriculum shows up in, in two ways. One is sort of tactically, and one is, is more fundamentally. U.S. college applications is a subject of a lot of debate, discussion, controversy, and recently scandals. Of late, it has been about equity and fairness. Andrew McGuire, in his upcoming book, Hidden Curriculum, shines light on a significant but less publicized aspect, the norms, behavior, language, and unstated expectations that certain types of students are unaware of in the college admissions process. These students are unaware because these topics are not formally taught. They are for the most part learned by being in an environment or having access to family and friends or well-resourced schools. Andrew joins us on our podcast today to tell us why he's writing the hidden curriculum, how he's framing the discussion and the types of solutions to teach the hidden code. So without any delay, here's Andrew McGuire. Hey, Andrew. How are hey, you? Hey, Venka. Likewise, likewise. So welcome back to our podcast, College Matters, Alma Matters. And uh, it's uh, exciting to talk to an author today. Um, and uh, First of all, congratulations on your upcoming book, The Hidden Curriculum, and uh, really looking forward to talking about it today. So, very well. So, maybe the best place to start would be to sort of talk about what this book is all about, or this topic is all about, but I'd be interested in sort of knowing why why this was interesting to you. So, we tell us what is Hidden Curriculum and why this is interesting to you. Anyway. Yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. So at the highest level, when, when we talk about the hidden curriculum, we're talking about those norms, behaviors, and language that have a lot of power in the education system, particularly here in the U.S., mm-hmm. but are not taught, right? Mm-hmm. So these are things that are unstated. They're not taught. They're, they're more informal. Mm-hmm. So they're, they still make up a curriculum, but it's one that's hidden to a number of students who might not learn it from their families, their communities, or in some cases from, you know, the most well-resourced schools or, or teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what we mean when we're talking about the hidden curriculum, and that manifests in lots of different ways at many points in the educational journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, I began to confront that in my own experience in high school. My parents are from the UK, and so, you know, I had some of the similar experiences of a lot of immigrants to this country, um, but mm-hmm. others were easier for me, right? My parents spoke English, that's what we spoke in the house. So some things were, were quite familiar, but there were still some fundamentals about the education system that my parents were just not aware of. Mm-hmm. And so that was not passed down to me as I began to navigate in particular high school and some of the 
the college prep process and the college admissions process that came with that. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that continued on when I, when I made it to college and even into grad school to continue to confront these sort of hidden norms um, and behaviors that some students come in with because they've been taught that, but others, it will remain kind of a mystery and put them at a disadvantage in a, in a consistent and prolonged way. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a very interesting point. So, um, so I, guess, I guess basically you're saying that people um, kind of know this through just um, osmosis or some, some process like that um, as they grow up, but it isn't something that is in any organized way taught at the different educational levels uh, through high school or uh, uh, prep school. Yeah, a little bit. So I think some, some of it is through osmosis, right? It's, it's some of that, it's modeled for you, um, perhaps mm-hmm. by your parents or, or by peers in your community. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's explicit, right? And so if you're a, a young person in a multi-generational college family, mm-hmm. then your parents are going to know to suggest certain ways that you might approach a faculty member. Mm-hmm. They're going to understand how the college admissions process worked because they went through it. So some of it is made explicit, right? But it's, it's made explicit usually by informal means. It's mm-hmm. rarely explicit in a formal educational setting. Um, I would say that there are rare, rare cases and usually those are some of the most well-resourced schools. And, and we're talking here especially about sort of middle and high schools, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then sometimes, and, and this is actually what my book focuses on, there are informal educational institutions like youth development organizations that really play a huge part in shaping, teaching, and translating that hidden curriculum for those students who are often not taught that by their parents or their families. Mm-hmm. Um, and those play a really powerful and often a sort of under-recognized role in mm-hmm. helping overcome this barrier. So it looks like you've taken um, this idea of hidden curriculum and tried to show how it impacts sort of going to college. I mean, the college admissions process. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing you're picking that because that's sort of the first big step that a student typically takes in the education process. Is that, is that why? Yeah, that's definitely part of it. Um, Yeah. I I think it's so, especially in the U S right, we have a narrative around the importance of college and how uh, college sort of can can help you get ahead economically. And Mm -hmm. I would say today, a lot of uh, both families, parents, and youth understand the purpose of education to unlock economic opportunity. And so when we think about what can help young people do that the most, it's often college that's pointed to. And so thinking about how the hidden curriculum shows up in unlocking that opportunity uh, is really important. And the admissions process is really the first step of doing that. Okay, so let's just get to it then. I mean, how does it show up in the college admissions process? I mean, at a high level. Yeah. So, you know, I think for those who are unfamiliar with the process, college admissions feels like it's written in its own language, right? Mm-hmm. And this is especially true for, for first-generation students whose families don't have their own experiences to draw on. 
Um, and so I would say that the hidden curriculum shows up in, in two ways. One is sort of tactically and one is, is more fundamentally. Mm-hmm. So from a tactical perspective, uh, you know, there are certain approaches to the admissions process mm-hmm. um, that the hidden curriculum is a part of. So, so this might be in how you choose to build a college list and sort of the strategy behind which colleges might be best for you to apply to based on your academic and financial background. Uh, Mm -hmm. This can be certainly in how you prepare for and succeed in standardized tests, in how you prepare your college applications, how you write college essays, and certainly in how you apply for financial aid. And at every step along the way, there is so much confusion um, for for how this process works. And and often the the easiest step to cut through this is by being part of sort of that multi-generational college family. And so... um, I find that, you know, the process can already be challenging, as we know, you know, especially mm-hmm. for the most prestigious universities, they're very competitive. But then to have this added layer of sort of uncertainty and the spoken rules really impacts how you tactically approach it. And then I think it also shows up fundamentally in how young people understand the college admissions process. And this is, mm-hmm. again, very much connected to the narratives we have around education in this country, which is that, you know, education is all about merit. And the way you are selected in, in a, for a college is solely on your merit. The reality is that the college process rewards strategy almost as much as it rewards merit, right? I'm not, certainly not going to say that, that your accomplishments don't, don't mean anything. They mean a lot. But people get ahead with maybe equal merit to other applicants because they understand the strategies of how to apply and how to make themselves stand out as effectively as possible. And so I think that's another way that the hidden curriculum really influences the the college admissions process. That's actually a wonderful point. I mean, what you just made about the fundamental, the difference between sort of merit versus a strategy. And and, and I, I guess there's a lot of business and industry around how to sort of put that strategy together. Yeah, um, exactly. So before we sort of get ahead of ourselves, so maybe the best thing to do is sort of you listed out a bunch of places in the process mm-hmm. where on the tactical side, um, where the hidden curriculum kind of shows up. So maybe we can just take that, uh, you know, one by one. Yeah, maybe we can start with the standardized testing. Let's see. Mm-hmm. I mean, what what is I don't know? Just to ask the question somewhat controversially, what is wrong with standardized testing? I don't think it's that controversial. <laughs> I, okay. I think it, it, is, it is absolutely a broken broken system. You know, there are a lot of really bright scholars who have studied and documented the ways in which standardized testing are biased. Um, one resource that's really accessible I recommend is Paul Tuff's book, The Years That Matter Most. Um, and mm-hmm. in part of that, he really does a great job of detailing how, you know, sort of the standardized testing industry and a lot of the main stakeholders there have, have tried to avoid the reality that these tests are, are biased. And actually in 2013, the College Board, which, which is the organization that runs the SATs, Uh, finally admitted Mm -hmm. in some of their own data that there is a consistent bias in their scores that shows a direct relationship between your family's income 
and scoring mm-hmm. the SATs with lower income students corresponding to lower scoring SATs. Mm-hmm. So there, there is just data to say that it is broken. And so I think when we, we think about why, in the end, the SAT and other standardized tests are often not really about measuring aptitude as they claim. They're about measuring test mm-hmm. strategy. And mm-hmm. you know, as you alluded to, this is one industry has absolutely grown around this reality to be able to help mm-hmm. those who can afford it learn how to have the strategy to test well. So there's mm-hmm. a great example, again, from Paul Tuff's book. He profiles someone named Ned Johnson who leads uh, a really sought-after test prep group in D.C. suburbs. And his approach mm-hmm. is all about focusing less on sort of the academic content, right? How do you, how do you manage analogies or vocab or, or the tricky geometry questions? And it's more mm-hmm. about strategies to combat anxiety during the test. And basically mm-hmm. part of who does that is by saying, look, students, this test is silly and it doesn't reflect how smart you are. It's just a system that colleges have used to try and understand and approach admissions. So mm-hmm. he tries to minimize its importance and its reflection on a student's ability. And in the process, mm-hmm. then focus their energy on saying, okay, if you see this kind of problem, what kind of shortcuts might you think of, or what kind of examples might you have to sort of help you got, get through this question? Mm-hmm. And that has proved really valuable. He's seen huge success with his students. And as a result, mm-hmm. he's able to charge $400 an hour for his services. So mm-hmm. there's a huge premium here, right? Um, but I think this story and his work, and, and you know, he is just one of many test prep providers around the country, uh, and frankly, around the world, um, it shows the, the brokenness of the system. And I'll, I'll say, just as a final point on this, that I actually think one silver lining, there are a few of them, but a silver lining of COVID-19 is that many colleges have started becoming test optional. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that this is, I I hope, and I think that these policies are actually likely to stick around in many cases. Uh, And I think by doing so, the admissions process will have gotten a little less biased and a little bit more inclusive, particularly for students from lower income backgrounds who can't pay thousands of dollars for those test prep courses um, and are going to be, you know, judged and, and, and considered based on their other merits and, and their application rather than a test that, that really doesn't prove a helpful comparison of um, one student's aptitude compared to another. Let's go to the next uh, point that you made. I think it had to do with college essays. Mm-hmm. Um, what's what's uh, the challenge there? Yeah, so I think college essays are a great example of how the hidden curriculum shows up in a very specific way. So when you prepare a college application as a student, you you receive a prompt for an essay almost always. Uh, The common Mm -hmm. application has this, there are supplemental essays, and those prompts come with explicit instructions on what you are expected to write and for how much. So maybe it Mm -hmm. helps you write about a challenge you've overcome in 600 words or less. Mm-hmm. And so we look at that and we say, okay, well, you know, that's essentially explicit. What more could there be to that? They've, they've given me a prompt, their instructions, it's clear. And I think the reality is that underneath that prompt, there are these unstated expectations from an admissions perspective around the best ways to write a college essay. 
And so some of mm-hmm. those unstated expectations are making sure that you're telling a story, right? And this is something mm-hmm. I remember from my high school days, uh, some good advice, which is imagine being an admissions officer who is reading hundreds, if not thousands of essays at some points. Um, mm-hmm. How do you stand out? How do you give them a break by giving them something that feels like a true narrative and is really telling a story and, and makes them enjoy it and not just feel like it's sort of checking a, a box uh, or a formula. So, you know, that's mm-hmm. sort of unstated, right? Colleges are not necessarily prompting you to tell a story, but it's a really effective strategy. Mm-hmm. Another piece right. of this is <clears throat> sometimes you'll get more generic prompts um, and an expectation or a pressure that um, many students pick up on is that colleges want to understand about your values and often about challenges that you've overcome your ability to adapt or your resilience. And this can be particularly tricky for students who come from underrepresented backgrounds, for many first-generation students, who might Mm -hmm. read into that and think, okay, I have to tell the most traumatic or or difficult part of my life. And Mm -hmm. that can be really jarring. It can be re-traumatizing. It can feel really performative or really transactional to say, basically, Mm -hmm. you know, I feel like I'm cashing in on sort of the worst things of my life. Um, And that can be really challenging for students to understand how to navigate that. And so I think there, this is another piece where there's sort of um, an implicit understanding of how uh, colleges might recommend or expect you to portray yourself in an essay, but in practice, it, it's much more nuanced and, and really difficult to accomplish. And so this is where, you know, having that individualized college counseling, like you might have at a private school, um, really mm-hmm. helps because then you have someone who can coach you in telling that good story and showing off some of um, your own experience or, or telling maybe about a challenging time in a way that doesn't feel transactional or, or too, too intimate. And so it's a really difficult um, balance to strike, but I think it's, you know, students are rewarded for, for finding that balance and many students mm-hmm. who, who know about that and sort of those expectations that are unstated from the college are those uh, with the privilege to be able to decipher and decode that hidden curriculum. Hmm. Do you know if there's any um, data, if you will, around this? I mean, I'm assuming that, um, I mean, this is happening every year for the last, you know, bunch of decades. Um, Do we have any data at this point or any studies or anything of that kind? I haven't seen, Um, I haven't, yeah, I haven't seen data. It's a good question. I think it's a tricky one to capture, right? Because, um, uh, there are a lot, there's lots of anecdotal evidence and certainly that's been true yeah. in, in a lot of the interviews that, that I conducted with students and it's true in many other, um, scholarly pieces as well, but it's a little bit harder mm-hmm. to capture that in a, in a more quantitative way, but I'd be curious if there is some, um, I haven't seen any. Okay. So. Moving along, I, I think um, you mentioned uh, college lists, so making college lists as another uh, element mm-hmm. in this uh, process that is that is hidden. So, what about what about making a list? Yeah. So this is very much wrapped up in in financial aid in some ways. Um, but one of the things mm-hmm. that I think 
is a big surprise. And this is something I heard from a lot of folks who work with young people um, mm -hmm. is the idea that actually some of the most competitive universities are actually some of the best options for highly achieving, but low income students. I think it can be hard mm -hmm. for, for lower income students to wrap their heads around. And it certainly was difficult for me to, to understand because you see a really large price tag on the most prestigious universities. And so you think, well, I, I can't mm -hmm. possibly pay that myself. And I don't want to go into that level of debt. But the reality mm -hmm. is that uh, those universities also consistently have the highest endowments. And as a result, mm -hmm. really have the most generous financial aid policies. Um, in many cases, some of them will meet now 100% of your demonstrated need. And in some cases, they will meet 100% of that demonstrated need without loans. So it will only be through mm -hmm. either on-campus study, like work study, or grants, mm -hmm. which you won't have to pay back. Mm -hmm. And so that was the case actually for me at, at Vanderbilt University, which is my undergraduate alma mater. Uh, they have committed mm -hmm. to that in recent years, and they're one of just a few institutions to do that. And it's incredibly important in providing uh, more accessible college space and a really top-notch one at that. So, but I think that that's important, right? Is to understand when you, from a financial perspective, which for me when building out a was was variable number one, um, thinking about and understanding financial aid policies from the, the universities that you might be most excited about, even if they're a stretch, mm -hmm. if you get in, you actually probably could get more financial aid than maybe some of your schools that are considered a little bit more accessible to get into. Um, mm -hmm. And then I think, you know, th so there are a lot of other pieces around how you think about building a college list, you know, uh, the idea of there being sort of reaches, which are those that might on paper, you know, maybe your GPA is a little bit outside of the average or your SAT scores are out of the average. Um, and so it would be aspirational, mm -hmm. right? And then you also build sort of the quote unquote safeties, which are where you're probably on the top end um, of course. Right. And then you, you find some in the middle, right? Even that idea um, is potentially unfamiliar to people. And there's no, there's no standardized resource that we could turn to as a student to say, how do I build a college list? Um, and then I think that the one other piece I think is really important is and this is a, probably the hardest one, is, is finding a way to really understand what the community on a campus is like. And mm -hmm. really hard to go beyond the pamphlets, right? And, and the nice right. shiny websites. Um, but finding ways to really connect with folks who are on campus in that community or alumni who have um, had their experience they can share. You know, understanding what's important for you, the kinds of community you want to build, the kinds of resources you hope to tap into um, and mm -hmm. asking and trying to get those, those first-hand experiences, I think is really important because ultimately, you know, name brand, yes, it, it matters, you know, how prestigious something is. Sure. Absolutely understand the, the value of that, but sometimes right. that masks some of the realities of what it would be like to be there in person. Right. And, so I think it, it's really important and helpful to be able to connect with people who have had that experience and can give you an insider's account where possible. Is there anything else on financial aid that um, 
that is an unknown. I mean, I think I think this idea of um, top-notch universities, um, you know, willing to open their wallets a lot more, uh, is certainly something uh, important for uh, everyone to yeah. consider, or at least ones that need help to consider. But there's also this myth around. Um, I've heard this from people saying that if they show they need financial aid, then the chances of admission mm-hmm. um, are somewhat diminished. You know, this whole idea of need blind versus need right. based. Um, so wh- what, what have you heard about that? Or wh- what does that sort of fit in that equation? Or where does that fit in this? Equation? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's one of those cases that sort of straddles the, the hidden curriculum and what's explicit, right? Because institutions do share and, and they do have to share what their approach is, whether they're, they're need blind, which means that they will not, they will consider your application independent of your financial aid application, right? So they will not see what your relative mm-hmm. need is versus need based where mm-hmm. it will be incorporated into their decision, which means that basically they're balancing their books so that they don't accept too many students who would require full financial aid. Um, and instead are trying to balance it so that they are still basically financially <laughs> solvent. Um, right. And so, you know, making sure that you understand that, again, I think sometimes what happens because of the sequencing of financial aid and college applications is that usually you finish your financial aid application after you've completed your college applications. And so sometimes it becomes right. an afterthought. And I think one thing that can be important that maybe is often unstated is to make sure you understand what those financial aid policies look like before you start compiling your list, before you start um, your application and, and be aware that if you're applying to a lot of need-based institutions that, um, and you'll need a lot of, you'll have a high level of need, you know, keep that in mind and see if you might be able to, to add a few other need blind institutions. You know, I think being strategic about that, that matters. Um, I think, you know, other pieces on, I I would just say broadly, it's worth acknowledging in in this moment for folks who are listening that financial aid, the financial aid process in the U.S. is just completely inaccessible. And you shouldn't feel bad (laughs) if it feels Mm -hmm. overwhelming or confusing. You know, the primary form that we use for financial aid here is the FAFSA, which is a federally designed and kind of managed form. And it's the colleges because mm-hmm. it's consistent. And so we fill out one mm-hmm. form, but it's been critiqued for a number of reasons, namely that it's built for a very narrow kind of student experience and family experience. It's sort of traditional. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of institutions like the Gates Foundation, Young Invincibles, and a lot of other stakeholders have been lobbying um, to fix the FAFSA. And actually this year, you know, as we speak, there are um, new initiatives and, and edits to simplify and make it more accessible. But, you know, mm-hmm. I think it can be a surprise, particularly for students whose family situations might be sort of quote unquote non-traditional. It can be really challenging to mm-hmm. get the right forms you need, et cetera. So, you know, someone I spoke with for the book, a former classmate of mine, she worked for the YMCA and worked primarily with Latino students. And so a number of, the, number of mm-hmm. their, their parents were undocumented. And so they don't have mm-hmm. the formal financial documentation necessarily that might be needed for the FAFSA. And so she found this sort of, um, this interesting insider information really, which was 
for students with undocumented parents, there's basically a glitch in the system that you just have to kind of keep hitting submit uh, until the FAFSA platform accepts your application, right? And you have to sort of skip a couple of fields. And that's in, insane, right. right? That just should not be the way that that works. Right. Um, it should be so much easier yeah. for a student from, uh, with undocumented parents to be able to apply. And so that, that's just one example. There are lots of other cases, for instance, folks who um, are adults or independent, maybe they're emancipated um, teenagers who, who don't have a relationship with their family mm-hmm. and are often expected mm-hmm. to provide their family's financial information. So there's just an inflexibility mm-hmm. in the forms that can be really frustrating and biased against uh, folks from certain backgrounds. So that's all to say that, you know, it is just a messy and complicated system. And I'm glad to see that there are some reforms coming along. Um, but for folks mm-hmm. who are listening and preparing for that process, you know, if it feels frustrating and confusing, you are definitely not alone. Obviously, there are a whole bunch of, um, let's just say, issues and challenges. Um, how how does one go about mm-hmm. fixing them? How can the you know powers that be, the stakeholders, sort of create an environment that this becomes a lot more yeah. equitable? So uh, I'm going to answer that from the perspective of a, a few different stakeholders because I think it's important to acknowledge sure. that this has to happen as a system. Um, so you know, my book, as I mentioned, we really focus in on youth development organizations. And these are kind of operating outside of mm-hmm. the, the formal system. They're capturing students in, in voluntary after-school weekend programs often. And they play this amazing role, mm-hmm. right? And so that responsibility that they play is often overlooked. And it really deserves to mm-hmm. be acknowledged for one, because I think what, particularly for students, it can be really powerful to understand that these youth development organizations are actually a great outlet for them and somewhere that they could turn to, particularly if they're in a lower resource school that maybe has a really high uh, burden on their college counselors, which in a lot of cases, you know, you might have Mm -hmm. one counselor for an entire grade uh, or more. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think it's worth just acknowledging that the youth development organizations play this really key role. And actually, I think if they were brought into the sort of college process, whether that's through formal partnerships with high schools, former partnerships with higher education institutions, post-secondary institutions, it actually could help a little bit with this this process because they serve Mm -hmm. as one medium to be able to to break down the hidden curriculum to make it more explicit. And Mm -hmm. by doing so, hopefully make the hidden curriculum less powerful um, by making it more, Mm -hmm. more available to everyone. But they can't change the system mm-hmm. on their own. So of course, colleges have a lot of right. responsibility. So they could certainly, for one, make their admissions process more transparent. You know, simply start mm-hmm. with the college essays. Be clear about the kinds of applications you're looking for. Give application tips. Uh, offer webinars for prospective applicants to understand what uh, an essay, how to build an effective essay might might be and maybe even hear from current students about how they approached it. You know, you can think about 
of course, boosting financial aid availability, which in many institutions is really difficult because financial situation right now is, is already quite strained. Um, right. And then, you know, I think there's just an element here of just creating more inclusive environments and, and that's less about emissions, but um, it does sort of trickle up and trickle down. If, if students feel truly included on campus, they're probably gonna be more vocal and reach out to people at their high schools or young people who are interested in that institution, help them understand the, the processes of the admissions um, to their institution in particular. And so there is a ripple effect there, you know, beyond just being a good thing to do. I think it could have positive impacts on admissions. And then, you know, we zoom out even farther and stakeholders like the federal government have a play, a role to play here by making financial aid more accessible, which fortunately there are small steps to do. Um, and think earlier in the pipeline, right. you know, how are high schools investing more, communities investing more in things like college advising um, and uh, support to parents and families in navigating something like the financial aid process that can be really powerful on an individual level. Where are we finding uh, this right now? I mean, what, what do you think is the mm -hmm. state of play of um, all this is, you know, um, certainly what are colleges doing? Uh, what, what, what are you sort of hearing or what have you learned about that, uh, uh, you know, in terms of making changes to the admissions or to the financial aid and some of the other things that you mentioned? The forms yeah, I mean, I haven't seen many tangible examples of it improving. Um, particularly sort of from a, from a college perspective. I think there are sort of ad hoc um, approaches. I've been thinking less about how the colleges can make changes because I think there's a lot of attention on that and, and focus on sort of other spaces. And so I think that's where the real sure. innovation okay. is, to be honest. Um, you know, things like uh, the College Advising Corps, which has had mixed results, but, you know, it's trying to provide more... Um, readily accessible college advising on a virtual basis in sort of unreached communities. So examples like those, I think, are basically trying to fill the gap that colleges are frankly not filling on their own right now. Um, so uh, from my perspective, mm -hmm. I think we continue to sort of need to push and uh, have a call to action for those institutions to, to step up. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess there are five thousand plus colleges affecting change. There is a longer process. There are fewer sort of inflows and you know throttles that you can work with that can make a difference. So yeah, I, I think I think yeah. that makes sense. Um, so what what's the message for hmm. students out there? I mean, I think. Um, one is to sort of double click on the hidden curriculum and maybe translate it for them. Um, but how, how should, how do you want, you know, aspiring students to take this information yeah. and what should they do with it? Well, you know, for one, I just want to reiterate my earlier point, which is if you're feeling confused, if you're overwhelmed, if you're frustrated by the college admissions process, you are not alone. You're not alone in this moment. And frankly, for <laughs> generations before you, uh, we, have, we have been there, we have been frustrated. Um, 
the system is is not built in a way that is supposed to to be inviting or inclusive and that needs to change but it, it is a frustrating reality and i think acknowledging mm -hmm. that can be helpful um I would say, think about where you can find those resources that you might need to navigate this process and, uh, and understand what questions you don't even know what to ask, right? Which is really how the, how the hidden curriculum is exposed. So maybe those are in your school, right? And, and understand, you know, turn to that counselor and ask them questions. Don't just maybe take for at face value what they're giving you. Uh, try and dig into it a little bit more. If you don't have those resources in your school, mm -hmm. consider what youth development resources might exist. Um, there are lots of community organizations out there in almost every major city, certainly. There are those that are made virtual and available to you. So um, look into those if you can. And then, you know, some of those mm -hmm. tactical pieces we thought about, you know, keeping those financial aid policies in mind, um, especially as you're building out your, your college lists try and understand, you know, the nature of, of campuses, communities. Um, and then, you know, to your, to your point, Venka, around sort of this is, it can be hard to, to create change on college campuses. And one of the ways I think that we can most effectively do that is when the students are the ones sharing the concern. And I think what happens is, you know, we get accepted to university and we say, oh gosh, okay, I'm so glad I made it. I'm not gonna think about the admissions process again. The reality is that the same problems continue and not everyone is as lucky to make it. So, you know, if you're able to, if you're comfortable doing so, you know, trying to be vocal uh, with, certainly on, on your campus, um, join in other efforts if, if you find them that are lobbying for some of this change. I think when young people's voices are the ones calling for that change, it's often the most compelling. Uh, and so, I hope mm -hmm. that that, you know, plays some part in continuing to make our educational system just a little bit more inclusive. Well, that's a good point. That's a good point. I mean, I think uh, um, they do go through the process and they do, you know, the experience yeah. is fresh in their minds when they arrive on campus. And that's probably... Um, one of the best times to sort of mm -hmm. engage in something like this. I did want to ask you about international students, I mean, applicants. I mean, what, um, anything in particular, I mean, if, if it is hidden for domestic students, then it can be totally foreign, pardon the pun, yeah. for international students. So um, what, if any, additional advice you would have. Yeah, I mean, of course, them. financial aid situations are very different. And so, you know, that's probably a little right. bit less applicable. Um, but I think a lot of the, the other elements are quite similar. Certainly, you know, the way you think yeah. about your application, the way you think about your narrative and your essay are super important. You know, I think for international students, it, it's, it's a, also a pipeline question. You know, if, you, if you've gotten this far and you're listening to this podcast, you, you are, are far ahead of the game because you're seeking out that information about the college admissions process in a way that, that might not be available to, to other kids in your community. So you know, that, that's um, mm -hmm. a great resource. And if you can share, share the love, that, that's great. 
Um, and then, you know, I think, and, and maybe I'll, I'll come back for another episode on this, but I think one of the ways that um, the hidden curriculum shows up in a really powerful way and a challenging way for both first generation students in the US and international students is on some of these kind of on-campus elements. Um, and so, yeah, that's a, that's a whole nother conversation, but I see that being an area of, um, of strong overlap. Sure. No, absolutely. Um, we will plan on doing a part two of this on this topic. And uh, so very well. Um, anything more you want to add to the current no, discussion? No, I don't think so, but I really appreciate you having um, me. No, this has been great. There's uh, so much insight and there's so much value. And it's at a good time because it's early in the year and students are just getting ready, uh, hopefully getting ready for the fall application. So um, I will um, certainly get all this together and promote it and publish it and hopefully get it in people's Great. ears. Great. Well, I hope as quickly as we can. No, it, it, I'm sure it will be. And uh, so, Andrew, thank you again and look forward to chatting more. But thank you now, so much. Take care. Thank you. Hi again. Hope you enjoyed our podcast with Andrew McGuire, author of the upcoming book, Hidden Curriculum. Andrew's discussion applies equally to international students, given that they do not have access to any formal education on the requirements of the U.S. college applications. Based on Andrew's detailed insights, as a college-bound student, you should develop a better understanding and a strategy for your college application. To find out more about Andrew's book, check out www.andrew-mcguire.net. For your questions or comments on this podcast, please email podcast at almamatters.io. Thank you all so much for listening to our podcast today. Transcripts for this podcast and previous podcasts are on almamatters.io forward slash podcasts. To stay connected with us, subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, or visit anchor.fm forward slash almamatters to check us out. Till we meet again, take care and be safe. Thank you. College matters. Alma, Alma matters. matters.